Welcome to Archetypes and Anarchy, a podcast created by me, Courtney Floyd, and my Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon in spring of 2018. Episode 19, King Thrushbeard. Hi, and welcome to Group 7's Archetype episode. I'm Whitney. My name is Whit. I'm Michael. And this will be our uh, discussion on King Thrushbeard by Jacob and William Grimm. Before we really get going here, uh, for those of you that don't know the story of King Thrushbeard, a quick summary is it's basically about a really beautiful princess who mocks every guy that comes for her. Then she nicknames a king with a crooked chin Thrushbeard, so he gets his revenge by disguising himself as a beggar. Uh, then the princess's father, sick of her at this point, gives her in marriage to the disguised king. He makes her live in a miserable hut and forces her to sell pottery and then steal from the nearby palace when she goes to work as a servant. It was then that the king revealed that he has been disguising himself as the beggar the entire time. He says all this was done to humble your proud spirit and to punish you for the arrogance with which you ridiculed me. She cries and apologizes. I was terribly wrong and I'm not worthy to be your wife. Then maids dress her in the most splendid clothing for her wedding. Then her father and his whole court wished her and the king happiness in her marriage. And then their true happiness began only now. So let's get in there and really talk about the historical and cultural context um, of where King Thrushbeard came from. So Whitney was going to start us off with talking about just a little bit about the Grimm brothers. To get a better sense of who these authors were, I looked to a couple websites, one being Fairytale Critics Edition. And I got some information and it says that the Grimm brothers were well-known German scholars who collected and assembled folklore into documented fairy tales. The Grimm brothers were deeply influenced by Romanticism, a social movement brought on by Enlightenment. Um, at this time, Romanticism was in full swing during the brothers' lives and created a new interest in culture tradi- tradition in the people of Europe. So kind of what the Grimm brothers did is they went around um, and just had some conversations with people to really get their stories. And and so the Grimm brothers, like all of their publishing are really retellings um, that they also edited throughout the years, so like this is from the first publishing of the Grimm Brothers, but like throughout the generations they've changed a little bit, kind of when children's literature was becoming actual children's literature, like what we see today, but at this time like that wasn't really happening. Um, something else that I really found interesting was this little bit of information about the Princess of Charlotte of Wales. Um, She broke off her engagement with the hereditary Prince of Orange, and this was in 1814, and then in 1816 she married her husband and had that she had chosen herself, Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg. So this happens after the Grim Book of Fairy Tales, which was first published in 1812, but I thought it was worth mentioning because at the time, like, there wasn't, uh, it just wasn't super common for women to be able to choose their own husband, And, and again, like, this is 
talking from like the the hierarchy of things like the kings and queens obviously like peasants and just the lower income like they didn't really have a choice like they're marrying for economic reasons um but I guess some princesses did have a little bit of a choice so that's that's just something worth mentioning I feel like for the story because she did have a choice at first um and then it was chosen for her and I think that it also kind of emphasizes like the idea of how like stories will change over time I think a lot of retellings of this kind of adapt to that and this one is more like she mentioned earlier older um and so like newer retellings they might have that choice but in this one specifically she's only given that illusion that she has a choice to choose her husband so I think that's really interesting before we dive into the story right yeah it's just chosen for from this group of people it's not really like okay go find someone you love it's like hey here's this group pick one of them and she didn't Um, but we'll we'll dive into that very shortly And I think another thing that's important to know is that a lot of people believe that the Grimm's traveled around Germany gathering tales from peasants, but really what we came to find was that they listened to tales orally several times and wrote them down. So most of these storytellers weren't actually peasants, but most of them were educated young women belonging to the middle class or nobility. Um, And even in some of his earliest manuscripts, Wilhelm's made notes about who he heard the tales from, including the story that we're about to dive into right now. Now we will be doing a verbal performance of King Thrushbeard by the Grimm Brothers. Narrator 1 will be Whitney, narrator 2 will be Wit, and I, Michael, will be the third narrator. Insert music. A king had a daughter who was beautiful beyond all measure, but at the same time so proud and arrogant that no suitor was good enough for her. She rejected one after the other, ridiculing them as well. Once the king sponsored a great feast and invited from far and near all the men wanting to get married. They were all placed in a row according to their rank and standing. First came the kings, then the grand dukes, then the princes, the earls, the barons, and the aristocracy. Then the king's daughter was led through the ranks, but she objected to something about each one. One was too fat, the wine barrel, she said. Another was too tall, thin and tall, no good at all. The third was too short. Short and thick is never quick. The the fourth was too pale, as pale as death. The fifth too red, a prize rooster. The sixth was was not straight enough. Green wood dried behind the stove. And thus she had some objection to each one, but she ridiculed especially one good king who stood at the very top of the row and whose chin had grown a little crooked. Look, she cried out laughing, he has a chin like a thrush's beak. And from that time he was called Thrushbeard. Now the king, seeing his daughter, did did nothing but ridicule the people, making fun of all the suitors who were gathered there, became very angry, and he swore that she should have the she should have her husband the very first beggar that came to his door. A few days later a minstrel came and sang beneath the window, trying to earn a small handout. When the king heard him, he said, Let him come up. So the minstrel in his dirty, ragged clothes came in and sang before the king and his daughter. And when he was finished, he asked for a small gift. The king said, I liked your song so much that I will give you my daughter for a wife. The king's daughter took fright, but the king said, I have taken an oath to give you to the very first beggar, and I will keep it. Her protest did not help. The priest was called in, and she had to marry the minstrel at once. After that had happened, the king said, It is not proper for you, a beggar's wife, to stay in my palace any longer. All you can do now is go away with your husband. The beggar led her out by the hand, and she had to leave with him, walking on foot. They came up. 
What? You're good. Go ahead. They came to a large forest, and she asked, Who owns this beautiful forest? It belongs to King Thrushbeard. If you had taken him, it would be yours. Oh, I'm a miserable thing. If only I'd taken the king, the Thrushbeard king. Afterwards, they crossed the meadow, and she asked again, Who owns the beautiful green meadow? It belongs to King Thrushbeard. If you had taken him, it could be yours. Oh, I'm a miserable thing. If only I'd taken the Thrushbeard king. Then they walked through a large town, and she asked again, Who owns this beautiful large town? It belongs to King Thrushbeard. If you'd taken him, it would be yours. Oh, I'm a miserable thing. If only I'd taken the Thrushbeard king. I do not like you to always be wishing for another husband, said the minstrel. Am I not good enough for you? At last they came to a very little hut, and she said, Oh, goodness, what a small house. Who owns this miserably tiny hut? The minstrel answered, This is my house and yours. We shall live together. She had to stoop in order to get in the low door. Where are the servants, said the king's daughter. What servants, answered the beggar. You must do for yourself what you want to have done. Now make a fire at once, put some water on the boil, so you can cook me something to eat. I am very tired. But the king's daughter knew nothing about lighting fires or cooking. She and the beggar had to lend a hand himself to get anything done at all. When they had finished their scanty meal, they went to bed. But he made her get up very early the next morning in order to do the housework. For a few days they lived in this way, as well as they could. But they finally came to the end of their provisions. Then the man said, Wife, we cannot go on any longer eating and drinking here and earning nothing. You must weave baskets. He went out, cut some willows, and brought them home. Then she began to weave baskets, but the hard willows cut into her delicate hands. I see that this will not do, said the man. You have better spin. Perhaps you can do that better. She sat down and tried to spin, but the hard thread soon cut into her soft fingers until they bled. See, said the man, you are not good for any sort of work. I made a bad bargain with you. Now I will try to start a business with pots and earthenware. You must sit in the marketplace and sell them. Oh, she thought, if people from my father's kingdom come to the market and see me sitting there selling things, how they will ridicule me. But her protest did not help. She had to do what her husband demanded unless she wanted to die of hunger. At first, it all went well. People bought the woman's wares because she was beautiful and they paid her whatever she asked. Many even gave her the money and let her keep the pots. So they lived on in what she earned as long as it lasted. Then the husband bought a new pottery, bought a lot of new pottery. She sat down with this at the corner of the marketplace and set it around for her sale. But suddenly there came a drunken husser galloping along and he rode right into the pots, breaking them into a thousand pieces. She began to cry and was so afraid that she did not know what to do. Oh, what will happen to me? She cried. What will my husband say about this? She ran home and told him of the misfortune. Who would sit at the corner of the marketplace with earthenware, said the man. Now stop crying. I see very well that you are not fit for any ordinary work. Now I was at our king's palace and asked if they couldn't use a kitchen maid. They promised me to take you. In return, you will get free food. The king's daughter now became a kitchen maid and had to be available to the cook and do the dirtiest work. In each of her pockets, she fastened a little jar in which she took home her share of the leftovers. And this is what they lived on. It happened that the wedding of the king's eldest son was to be celebrated. So the poor woman went up and stood near the door of the hall to look in. When all the lights were lit and 
people, each more beautiful than the other, entered, and all was full of pomp and splendor. She thought about her plight with a sad heart, and cursed the pride and haughtiness which had humbled her and brought her to such great poverty. The smell of the delicious dishes, which were being taken in and out, reached her, and now and then the servants threw her a few scraps, which she put in her jar to take home. Then suddenly the king's son entered, clothed in velvet and silk, with gold chains around his neck. When he saw the beautiful woman standing by the door, he took her by the hand and wanted to dance with her. But she refused and took fright, for she saw that, the, that he was King Thrushbeard, the suitor whom she had rejected with scorn. Her struggles did not help. He pulled her into the hall, but the string that tied up her pockets broke and the pots fell to the floor. The soup ran out and the scraps flew everywhere. When people saw this, everyone laughed and ridiculed her. She was so ashamed that she would rather have been a thousand fathoms beneath the ground. She jumped out the door and wanted to run away, but a man overtook her on the stairs and brought her back. And when she looked up at him, it was King Thrushbeard again. He said to her kindly, Don't be afraid. I and the minstrel who you've been living with in that miserable hut are one and the same. For the love of you, I disguise myself. And I was also the hussar who broke your pottery to pieces. All this was done to humble your proud spirit and to punish you for the arrogance with, you, which, with which you ridiculed me. Then she cried bitterly and said, I was terribly wrong and I'm not worthy to be your wife. But he said, Be comforted. The evil days are past. Now we will celebrate our wedding. Then the maiden-waiting came and dressed her in the most splendid clothing, and her father and his whole court came and wished her happiness in her marriage to King Thrushbeard, and their true happiness began only now. I wish that you and I had been there as well. So after performing that story, we just kind of wanted to explain some archetypes that we found and that we can, that are just up for interpretation that we'll discuss for a little bit. So the first thing that I'll start off by saying is character types. Um, I think we can see that there's a beautiful princess, uh, the demanding old king, which I thought was interesting that they explicitly said that he was old. Um, another one is the King Thrushbeard, um, who is also acts as the lowly beggar, which could also be maybe the guileless fool. I'm not really sure. What do you guys think? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I think we can definitely separate, even though they're the same person, King Thrushbeard and the lowly beggar, into two separate categories, because they're... They act as upon their two different people until the very end. And in her world, they are two different people right. until the very end. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's kind of like, let's break down King Thrushbeard. Uh, he's kind of a bad person. Like, if I'm just like being honest, I mean, he really takes advantage of the situation and like teaches her a lesson. Like, um, I'm sorry you have a weird face, but. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think we were discussing this earlier before we started recording that. It's interesting that he took it upon himself to just teach this princess a lesson where he was being made fun of for his chin, which I'm surprised that it's never been brought to his attention before now that he had, like, a weird There's chin. There's no way it hasn't. That's why I'm thinking it's a little bit weird that it's just kind of, like, he's made fun of once, and then he's like, okay, I'm going to, like, take pause from my entire life and teach this princess a lesson I mean, wait, like, were there polyamorous relationships back then? Like, maybe he has more than one wife, and every woman who who has scorned him, he's taught a lesson. I think it's just hard for, like, us to deal with, like, a story like this, because, like you said, like, when we read a story like this, we just see the situation as, like, well, that's messed up. Like, but it's a different time, and it's almost like you have to modernly reinterpret it. It's like, okay, someone's being humbled 
I almost look at it more like to get the same message that they were trying to send back then. Like, okay, like you see when a rich person is giving a car to their son or daughter and they're unaccepting of it. Um, that's like more like a modern version of this because obviously today you can choose who you marry. That's like freedom 101. And back then that just wasn't a concept, a social concept. So it's just hard to even dive into. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but we also have to realize like is that social concept was created by men. Uh, women didn't have much say and and you can like compare it to a car, but like, what you ground your bratty teenager for not liking this car you bought them but he literally like drug her through the dirt and put her down and like made her into something that she wasn't born to do like she has no actual like worth work ethic skills like she wasn't taught that like that's not something you're born with that's something that is definitely like nurture over nature 100 percent um, and well, I, I think I that's think worth they being even said. mentioned it too they were kind of just like she like when she, she has was no skill yeah, yeah so she was either she worked or she starves, basically, were her only two options as a woman in a lower class situation, which is, I know, I mean, like, kind of sad and sexist, and which kind of makes this story into something different than maybe what it was intended for, I think. Exactly. But, I mean, also kind of going in a different direction, I just, like, wanted to bring up the different versions of, like, what King Thrushbeard is, and, like, in a normal archetype character like he kind of almost plays like as a trickster too he's like the mastermind behind the entire story which is really interesting so let's talk about the king a little bit um he's this powerful man who's in charge of the kingdom he's in charge of his daughter he originally like allows his daughter to make her own decision of who she chooses again like we said before this is from like a pool of people this isn't necessarily like her choosing from whoever she wants to choose from and he like aligns them up which I thought was also really interesting like from the highest power to the lowest of still um being of noble blood um so I I don't know I thought that was really interesting and I think it's also interesting to like observe I guess when I first initially read it I didn't think that the king was in on you know King Thrushbeard being the beggar and then them you know evidently ending up together but it kind of just, like, made me think, okay, so she disobeys him one time and he's going to marry his, like, 15, 16-year-old daughter off to any person and just be like, okay, you messed up, bye. Like, I just think that's, like, interesting and kind of proves, like, what it was like back then or at least, like, what story tales present them as. I don't know. And it just also shows, like, the concept of marriage in general is just not at all. It's what a contract. We, well, yeah, what we associate it today is, like, um, love, <laughs> uh, sacrifice, like selflessness, where it seems like even when there was consensual marriage in this time, it seems like it was more of like, like you said, a contract. What am I getting out of it? What are you getting out of it? It's just, we have to do it through family force things. Right. And she initially did, he, she was the one that he made, like she made fun of him the most. And then when she's married to that beggar, she like brings up, Oh, he has this land. He has this land. I wish I married him. Like, from her initial reaction, she obviously didn't like him at all. So I think that's, like, embedded in these stories that these young girls, like, only like people, you know, for their money, their wealth, their status. Yeah, it'd be one thing if they, like, showed, like, oh, there's King Thrushbeard being a great person over there. And then she'd be like, oh, I wish I married him for that. But they have her going, oh, I wish I married him because that house is big or the, the meadow's big. Right. And, I mean, that's also it's what she's used to, though. It's just, like, I mean, there's, like... TV shows, right, where they, like, switch lives of 
the rich and the poor and they like view their lives and they let the rich people go in this poor person's house and they're just like what on earth is this like they just don't even understand the concept of what it's like to have no money so I, I totally understand where she's coming from where she's just like well, if I'm not going to be happy in a marriage, I might as well not be happy and have all of this stuff. Like, Well, and kind of going off what you just said, like, I think it's, like, interesting in those, like, modern versions of that. Like, when they switch, the person who's more rich usually is like, oh, wow, like, it's not even, it's not worth it to be that rich if I'm not this happy. But in this story, they're kind of like, oh, like, you found out that you have skill in, like, maybe selling pottery, but, you know, it's probably better that you just marry. Right, she doesn't even learn her lesson. Like, what lessons learned? Exactly. There wasn't a lesson learned. It was just him punishing her. And, like, he, he's the one that should have learned a lesson. Like, maybe you shouldn't, if someone doesn't like you the way you are, you should go find someone who does appreciate you. And, right. again, just, like, today, that's how right. we would go about a relationship. But back then, he's like, yeah. I have I to force her. her. I hate him more now. I mean, like, are you kidding that he was so, like, hurt that she, that she didn't she like his, like, appearance, right. but he's, like, okay with her only liking him for, like, what he has, like, what land he has, which is, I mean, I think that's really interesting to point out. In the end, there's kind of what you could consider, like, a happy ending. Uh, I mean, it literally says, like, wish we could have been there, basically, at the end, that it was just beautiful. Um, and I don't know, like, she's taught a lesson, and it's more of she apologizes at the end. And, like, just, like, says sorry for everything and says that she doesn't deserve to be his wife. And it's like, um... No, you don't. You deserve better. Just, I think it's, like, just to start. how, like, this story is, like, trying to follow that archetype of, like, happy ending. Like, oh, everything was kind of, like, really weird and, like, went a weird direction. But at the end, you know, she's married to a prince. Yay. Okay. Wish we could have ended that wedding. Right. Which is, like, you know, they it just kind of followed, like, a weird storyline, but tried to, like, fit the normal archetypes of, like, a storyline, I think. Right. I guess we can just end this by saying I'm happy she's happy. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. We're happy she's happy. Insert music here. To wrap things up, we're going to go ahead and discuss each of our individual close readings. We're just going to kind of like give our opinions on the story and like what we got out of it and what we really think like was happening more than just like what we read. So in class, we discussed the major archetypes, themes, and messages that were displayed throughout King Thrushbeard. Um, in order to thoroughly guide my thought process of this specific fairy tale, I used a couple questions from the book Writing Essays About Literature by Katherine Arkison to help me break down this process. The first question is, what words stand out? In order to get an accurate representation, I used a tool mentioned by Professor Courtney Floyd, buoyanttools.org. This creates a word cloud and lets users know how many times each word was mentioned in a text. In the story, the most used words are king, which was 18 times, Said, which was 15 times, Thrushbeard, which was 10 times, Came, 9 times, and Daughter, 9 times. This top word being king comes as no surprise. This struggle, or the story includes two kings, one being the father and the other being Thrushbeard, the disguised beggar. I think this clearly identifies the underlying theme of the men overpowering the women in the story. What this also pointed out to me was that the king's daughter is only referred to as princess in this tale once but is primarily identified as the daughter of a king and then graduates to be another king's wife. I think this is very telling with the way the fairy tale is articulated and how it has stayed the same throughout all the retellings of King Thrushbeard. Another question I decided to use was, do I like the work? In order to completely decide whether I like King Thrushbeard or not, I needed to analyze what the grandbrothers were intending for the audience to gain as a life lesson or just for a fun story. I think the story points out a lot of outdated customs from this time. 
I also think that it emphasizes the idea of women needing to marry a wealthy man in order to succeed. I was shocked by the father's quick disregard of his daughter, and it made me think, what if it was his son? The situation would be completely different. I didn't like the ending with the princess in tears, but she was quote-unquote rewarded with marriage from this man who put her through hell and back. I appreciated the interesting story aspect, but I didn't like the underlying messages of gender roles and gender norms. Lastly, the question I decided to end it on was, what feelings does it give me and do I identify with any of the people represented? For this question, it was a little bit tough to identify with anyone, but I think what mainly stood out to me was that a lot of people in life, when something bad happens to you, you want to get that person back or make sure that they get what they deserve. Um, although I think towards the end, it becomes clear that what Thrushbeard did was a bit extreme and made me realize it's not our responsibility to teach other people lessons. Also, it brought up feelings of unfair gender equality in these stories and how it can be twisted into a happily ever after towards the end. So I think to sum up that question of can you identify with someone in the story, I think really no, but there's aspects of, you know, teaching someone a lesson that you can relate with. But overall, I don't think there's really any characters in the story that many people can relate to. I think it's more of an outdated story. However, I do think that maybe modern retellings of this can be a little bit more related, relatable to people. And I think it can give them that feeling of like, you know, do do good and good will happen to you and if not you'll be taught a lesson you'll be humbled and you'll be a better person because of it you know you'll end up married to a prince you'll end up with more land more money this and that and I think that that's kind of emphasized throughout the meaning of the story by the Grimm brothers and I think that this message that you know once unraveled you can see I think it's kind of buried between all these like outdated customs of sexism but like back in this time when this was written um, and I kind of looked to like a website, tour.com, and it talked about customs and the importance in this uh, fairy tale of modesty, obedience, and hard work from the lower class and that, you know, women have to find, you know, either, like we said earlier, they either have to find, if they're in the middle class, they have to find work or basically they'll go starving. And if not, then they have to marry up. And that's really all that women could do in this time period. And she was only truly happy when she was with a man who basically tricked her into a whole situation of being poor and like having to sell things and he was the one who broke all her pottery when she finally found out what she was good at and I think it just kind of teaches a weird lesson and you can take some things out of it like you can most stories you can just take what you need from it but I think buried beneath it it's still just a story about a woman only being able to achieve happiness if she you know, is trapped in a marriage where he might be the most evil person in the world, but you know, hey, he has money and he can support her and she won't have to work a day in her life and she can just remain the status of a princess. And just overall, my opinions on this story, I would just say like it's not my personal favorite, although I do like a lot of other grim fairy tales. I think this one, just for women in particular who are reading, and I think it doesn't teach the right lessons to young girls and women even our age and older, I think it's just not the right lesson to be teaching. So I kind of just want to start by going through the story a little piece by piece and just kind of breaking it down a little bit. Because for me, I mean, I thought the story was kind of BS. Like I thought it was more inappropriate than anything else. It was very misogynistic and it tried to really make it seem like it was the princess's fault that all these things happened to her. Like she had some choice in the matter, but 
what it really comes down to is she didn't. So let's just kind of start from the beginning. Um, I thought it was pretty cool that she got to pick from an array of suitors, if you will. And the, her, her dad even like lined them up for her from like the most money, the most, the highest of the hierarchy to the lowest, which is it's still noble. It still would have been an, a good suitor for her. Um, and she goes through and yeah, okay, we'll admit like it wasn't cool for her to just call everyone like mean names and just like make little little snide remarks about it like that wasn't okay but then you know her dad's just like really upset because he didn't she didn't pick one so they're they're right there is like taking away the illusion of that being a choice for her like he's making it very clear it wasn't a choice and he was so upset about it and he was just like really wanted to he really wanted to prove his point that she needed a husband and it wasn't an option so then he decided that the next beggar that came to the door was going to be her husband and the next day a minstrel comes so I guess a minstrel is just someone who sings apparently that was very common for a minstrel to come and sing like below the window to make some money I don't know it seems like a weird job to me but I didn't live in the 1800s who am I to judge um anyway so the king decides that you're gonna marry this beggar this minstrel and he like calls up the priest and they get married and there's like no objection like literally the king just decided like told this dude like hey you're marrying my daughter which I mean is weird from one start but he's the king so he can make that decision you can't say no to a king it's a monarchy there's no there's no yeses or no it's just yes um so then she marries this this minstrel and they leave immediately I guess I'm not really sure I guess it doesn't matter and they start walking through the town and they walk through some grass and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, oh, who does all this belong to? And it all belongs to King Thrushbeard, the guy that she insulted last because of his chin. But again, she insulted everyone else. Worth mentioning. They didn't get that mad about it. Um, so she goes and has to live with this beggar. And she's like, where are the servants? Why is this house so small? And he's like, this is where we have to live. Like, you need to work. If you don't work, like, you'll starve to death. Like, that's just the bottom line nothing else is going to happen of it so he like threatens her with starving to death so she's scared and knows that she has to work and this is a princess like she's never had to work a day in her life she's never had to lift a finger do anything like that and he expects her just to like why don't you know how to sell something why don't you know how to weave a basket why can't you make a fire like why would she be able to do that if anything it would be a little weird if she did know how to do that so then she ends up selling some pots and pans, which she's not necessarily good at, but because she's pretty, people buy it. Like, sometimes they just give her money. They don't even take the pots and pans. So let's, like, break that, that down for a second. Because of her beauty, so again, in this fairy tale world, they're really establishing that beauty is the most important thing a woman can have, and if they're not beautiful, then they're not worth anything. And literally, like, if she weren't beautiful, she wouldn't be worth anything. She wouldn't have been able to sell these pots and pans. She wouldn't have been able to do anything. Apparently, that was just literally her only skill. Um, so moving on from that... Oh, yeah, and on top of that, not even moving on, um, some guy, some guy, a.k.a. her husband, came in and smashed all of her pots and pans when she was, like, trying to sell them. And then when she went home to tell her husband again not knowing any of this, um, what happened, he was just like, who would sit in the corner of the marketplace with earthenware? Now stop crying, I see very well that you are not fit for any ordinary work. He just, like, blames her for, like, the pots and pans breaking, which he did, 
So again, just like master manipulation to make her feel bad. And I don't even think they even go over... Oh, no, they do go over that in the end. So that's good, I guess, that he like admits everything that he did. But it's not even admitting. He's just stating what happened and she is apologizing to him. But we'll we'll get to that. Um, so he gets her this job at the castle um, because he's the prince. So that was super easy. I don't know why she doesn't question like how he like got her the job. But that just happens and... She is just with, like, the other servants and maids and whatnot. Um, and then she is there the night that uh, the king's oldest son is having a wedding. Um, and it turns out that it's King Thrushbeard. So I'd first like to start by saying, how is he a king if he's the first son of the king? That would make him a prince. And that would also not make any of that belong to him. Like, he might be first in line, but he's definitely not in charge or the king so I don't know why they ever called him a king and I don't know why he said any of it was his um and then he explains to her what happened and she apologizes she says I was terribly wrong and I'm not worthy to be your wife and that part really upset me I'm not worthy to be your wife like what does she do she literally called him a name and if he had that chin his whole life like why hadn't that come up before? Like, it probably had. Sorry, you have such a bad attitude. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it was okay, because it never was. So that's my opinion on that. Um, and then also the dad seemed to be in on it, because at the end it also says, um, it says somewhere that he was there at the wedding with, like, her servants and, like, her court. Um came to wish her happiness in her marriage with King Thrushbeard. And then it goes on to say, and her, their true happiness began only now. So basically neither of them were happy, but now they're all happy because the truth came out. Um, so I guess it's good that he told her the truth in the end. But again, we're, the story is trying to make it seem like these her actions and her decisions led to this when in fact like she didn't actually have any decisions or actions that could have led to it because she can't choose her own life so he did all of this to her for no reason because it would have ended up the same way um just to close things off I just I just want to say that I didn't appreciate the story I thought it was a little ridiculous um one of the questions that we were supposed to answer was like do you connect any of the characters absolutely not um I'm left fortunate enough to never have been in a position where decisions have to be made for me because I'm a woman and um, I can't say I'm like the king, so I would never make someone marry a peasant, or I'd never make anyone marry anyone, and I'm definitely not like King Thrushbeard or the Beggar because I'm not petty, and I don't just need revenge for no reason. And so, in the end, I just, I don't recommend the story. So for me, like most of the fairy tales I've been reading, it's very hard for me to relate to characters or to accept the setting because... I'm a really big nonfiction fan, so just general fiction is hard for me. But then when it's fairy tale, it's so extreme fiction, it's even more hard for me to grasp. And so I guess what I'm going to do is kind of go through the questions and just give my different opinions on them. So as far as do I like the work, um, it's an interesting story about being humbled, but this specific story I'm not a huge fan of. I think... Whitney and Whitney both touched on why. There's obviously a lot of underlying sexism, misogyny. Um, and besides just the sexist part of dealing with the genders, it, 
a freedom thing. I'm a huge freedom person. So regardless of it even being a male or female, the fact that there's not freedom involved in this character's decision really doesn't sit well with me. Um, there's an illusion that she has this freedom to choose her husband, but that's really not the case. It's more of an illusion. She really doesn't have a choice. She has to get married. Her father's very mad when she doesn't choose to get married. Um, and I'm kind of a rebellious person. I have no problem with her saying, none of these dudes are good enough. Like, I'm better than that. And I almost feel like if her father was more on her side, he would be like, oh, yeah. Like, you know. But because the message of the story is about humbling, they try to go in a different direction with it. And that's where things start to get interesting for me. Um, as far as what words stand out, um, I picked unworthy because, again, with this story, it's so weird to me that at the end, when all this has happened, I'm expecting her to go, well, you suck. Like, this is the craziest thing that's ever happened to me and, like, ride off on a horse somewhere. But she literally says, I'm unworthy to be your wife. And it's kind of like a shock. But then you have to go back to the fact that, okay, they're writing a story at this different time where they're trying to portray this female character as... And someone who needed to be humbled by the planned out execution of her father and this other man who this other man just wants to marry her and he wants to marry her even though she was basically disgusted by him which just kind of shows you what his side of it is again he is so I guess butthurt by this that he wants to take her freedom away through karma right quote-unquote karma by let's teach her a lesson and that's why, personally, when it comes to, do I identify with any of the people represented? No, not really, because I can't put myself in the girl's shoes because I've never had freedom oppressed. Um, I live in America in 2018, so I can't really <laughs> relate to having not having the freedom to choose something as basic as the person I would want to marry. So... And also going on with Thrushbeard, I can't relate to that either because I've never been so um, prideful about the way someone reacted to me that I felt the need to teach them the karma myself. I believe that karma is just kind of something that if someone deserves karma, it'll happen to them eventually. That's what karma is. Uh, it's not something you take into your own hands. And I don't understand why he didn't want to just go find someone that did appreciate the shape of his chin. That being said, I guess when it comes to the humbling part, I can try to play devil's advocate and relate because I think what the point of the story is, it's just trying to show you that someone needed humbled, even though the story doesn't make sense and I don't agree with what these characters did. I think everyone can go back and look on their life and say, what am I being ungrateful about? What am I not appreciating? Um, we always want to get higher in life. We always want materialistic things and... A lot of things can be taken from us and make us humbled and realize how good we have it. Um, especially, like I said, I, living in America, like we have it really good here compared to a lot of the world. So I think everyone can be humbled in, to a certain extent. So I guess if I'm looking at it from that light, I can see sort of the message. But as far as this particular story and the way it's told, obviously it needs to be modernized if you're going to actually be using it as something to teach people a lesson. Because as like Whit and Whitney both said before, like, they're, they're offended by this story. Like, it doesn't teach them anything. It just almost creates anger. So it really needs to be modernized if it's going to be used to teach a lesson. And that being said, I think we can all learn about being humble. And that's a wrap for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us break down this fairy tale and give our opinions on it. And we look forward to bringing you our next podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank, Thank you. you.
Archetypes and Anarchy is produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and researched and written by my spring 2018 Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon. Our theme music is Music Box by The Underscore Orchestra, and our closing music is Wolf, It's Really Rather Rad by High Arches, both of which are available under a Creative Commons license at the Free Music Archive. Today's background music is Thomas Morley's Now is the Month of Maying, performed by Matthew Hughes and available on museopen.org under a Creative Commons license. Hear the sound of the wolf that lives in the woods That comes to my back door from time to time Shake the hand of the sun that burns above Reaches down over everyone Got your jackal and heart, your monster inside Pouring water over your fire I incur us a soul, then I need to go Back into the woods, I'm told Not a single living thing needs to be left out You can find in the garden what's missing in yourself There's a spider web that connects heads Connected by the number nine can you think in visions and breathe in rhythms? Dream an ocean over your lips. It brings a deeper meaning, a powerful feeling. Brings us the myths we're told. And it's only clean water that supports the things that we're trying to grow. Not a single living cell needs to be left out. Find in the garden what's missing in yourself. Have you seen the way the speaker makes a pattern in the sand when the frequency is just right? Oh man, it's really rather rare.